Hey, Ian. Hey, Otis. How's it going? It's going going pretty well. I'm happy Patreon's got some stuff going on that people may know about, but I'm not going to comment <laughs> on that. <either>. There's <laughs> always stuff going on. Yeah, there's always stuff going on. Yeah, so like last week's episode was the like we had Mara, my boss, on, and we got a lot of we got a lot of feedback on that, mm-hmm. um, or at least I got a lot of feedback. Um, I think you know people you know, the the overwhelming response was I would like Mara to be my boss, <laughs> um, which she, you do. She, she she did seem pretty great. Yeah, yeah, she's got it down, and it's like it's all really well thought through, right? Like I don't feel like she has lucked into any of any of her her practices it, it's all got a lot of thought and rationale behind it and so i was very happy with how yeah uh, how that went yeah i mean managering is a real skill right mm-hmm. like it's not fake <laughs> yeah and i th- i think there are like i i think there like i have my own skepticism about like a good manager in one company is not necessarily a good manager in, in another yeah i mean i i, I I would say that almost flows logically, right? Because like management has to be attached to product, right? And so like a good product builder in in one space is not necessarily a good product builder in another space. Uh, A lot of what a good manager provides is going to be reliant on specific knowledge of like the relationships and the data and the like practices at a company and there are general tools that you can have that will transport but there's more specific tools that like come from being in a company and learning how it works and understanding the market and the customers and the people that make up a lot of it she does a really good job of articulating the the two roles of a manager right Mm -hmm. there is the like i need to achieve these business goals and i need to make the humans that work for me, like move towards those business goals, goals, but also they will do that best when they feel understood, heard, and motivated as humans. Do we think that managers don't get enough sympathy or empathy for their decisions and what they have to do? Because we made some jokes about how empathy does not flow uphill. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll start with you, Ian. Like, well, what's, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I think that that's an interesting question. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure whether or not there is an empathy gap or not uh, in terms of like how people actually interact. Uh, anyone who knows me knows that like I I might have some empathy issues <laughs> in general. <laughs> it takes a great deal of effort for Ian to simulate the other human's responses. Uh, yeah. Um, but it, it, so like, you know, do I think that 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 people should have more empathy for their managers? Like, I don't know the answer to that question because I don't know how much empathy they have and how much is enough and all that stuff. But I think there's like an interesting question behind the question here, which is that should people have a better idea of what it is their managers are actually doing? And to me, the answer to that is a clear yes. And the the reason is that that basically, if you don't understand like what your manager is doing, it's pretty likely that you don't understand how your company is structured, which also means that you're not that likely to understand how your business works, because all of those things, they're they're totally interconnected. 
And so if you're sitting there like inside your box, right, and you're doing a bunch of work and you're, you know, you're basically turning your crank and then a bunch of stuff happens external to you that interferes with your ability to turn your crank. And then you, you know, like your reaction to that is going to be, I'm going to go scream at my manager now, right? I am sitting here crank turning and all of this stuff is happening and you need to fix it because I am very unhappy that I can't turn my crank as fast as I want to. And, you know, when in reality, like what you should be doing at that moment in time is going to your manager and saying, okay, what's going on outside my box that is interfering with my ability to turn my crank? The answer might be like, hey, there's a bunch of organizational thrash going on or or like there is some bad stuff happening on the outside. Like, please, uh, I, you know, like. I'll discuss with you what it is and like, we'll figure out which part of this I'm going to handle and which part of this you're going to handle. It might also turn out that the answer is you shouldn't really be turning that crank, right? Like this thing that we thought three months ago was important is not important anymore. And, and I've been giving you signaling for the last, you know, six weeks that that's the case, but you're not moving to like go figure out if there's a different crank you should have been turning. And now we have a very serious problem. Ian, what is this crank turning company? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, look, so, 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 so in, in, is this harvesting human labor <laughs> for electricity? <laughs> I mean, in the, in, in the context of like, of like a data science job, like you will often see data scientists will like run down the rabbit hole of like, I need to build this machine learning model and like make it perform really, really, really well. And they, you know, and they'll, they will run down that hole and like start tweaking parameters and picking models and like, and like cleaning data and, and like, and, and choosing algorithms and writing libraries. And like, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I, I have had this, this like, this experience of like talking to a data scientist who is working on a modeling problem. And I ask them like, tell me like, what are you pointed at? And they say, I'm building some tooling so I can go faster, which is like, great, but go faster where exactly. Uh, and, and then like you have that conversation seven times and you basically realize that like, Oh, like, like this, this, this person is not like connecting into the business value of the company, which means like, they're not hearing me <laughs> when I say like, Hey, look, like the tooling is great, but where is it going to get us? And at what point are we like going to use it to do something? Um, and, and so like what's happened there is they've stuck themselves in, in a silo and they're turning a crank, right? They're basically like, I'm going to do this modeling thing and I'm going to build tools to do this modeling thing. And I'm looking at it from the outside, essentially saying, okay, like, I, I, I get that that's what you would like to do. Like, I need to understand, like, where does that plug into our company creating value in the world? And, uh, uh, and like, you know, because when I have a manager hat on, like, that is my charge, right? Like, my charge is, let's go generate, uh, uh, you know, let's go generate some value the model building is crank turning, right? Like that's a tool that we can use for that. It may or may not be the right tool depending, depending on, on, on the problem space. But what you'll see is basically people will get very, very focused on the thing that they're trying to do and then totally miss 
when you're like, hey, like that's, you know, like the environment shifted underneath us. Like this isn't a relevant thing to be doing anymore. And so like if you are a data scientist whose job it is to to produce models, like you do need to have a mental model of what your manager is dealing with. Do you have to have empathy for that person? Like, I don't know. But you do have to know like what it is, like what their interface to the world is and, and like how they're thinking about things, because that will also like give you a sense for like, well, how many other silos are there out there that like they might be working across because maybe the silo that I'm in is not the right one for like for for creating value. Uh, and the more breadth you have in terms of like your own ability to think through through these kinds of problems, the more value you can create for your company, which means like the farther you will go, whether you have empathy for your manager or not. Yeah. So I think you've imagined a situation where there's a, you know, a manager making the right choices and asking the right questions. And like, I think that most people have an easy time uh, being empathetic to that. You know, the the question is, is like if the manager's not like they're not communicating the context, you're turning that crank and it doesn't feel like they're yeah. they're getting there. And I'll, I'll argue that it's still like it's still useful for you. So like you were talking about how um, the you need to be understanding what context your manager is swimming in and they should be sharing that with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but managers are you know human they're human animals yeah. they're data animals right um they're politics animals so like having some like mental model of just like not only are what their beliefs in, about the company and where it's going but like who are they is also tremendously helpful I, yeah yeah i'm i don't i'm definitely not here to argue that like anyone is owed empathy yeah i don't think that's how that works i think empathy is a useful tool for you and it happens naturally when you feel like you're aligned with someone, when you're like on the same page and you're not in like a transactional or adversarial relationship. So like to me, like that means you should strive for that empathetic relationship between. By the way, this is like we're like giving this advice to the ICs yeah. when like 90 percent like like 90 <laughs> percent like, it I'm, should be targeted <laughs> at managers. Yeah. right? Like is like the managers are the ones that need this advice. Mm-hmm. And yet like the person who like asked me about it was like coming at it from an IC department where he's yeah. like, hey, I want to hold my managers to a high standard. And if I can't meet it, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave. Yeah. It's all correct. Yeah. It's just like. I think that like you can you can give them a better chance to succeed by having a like a robust emotional and mental model of what their what their what their motivations are and what they're trying to do. Yeah, and and like so 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 I think that that that's an important point too in terms of like thinking about your interface between like you and your manager like that that interface is not the same as the one between you and your computer right <laughs> like like that is a it, it, like regardless <laughs> or your crank. yeah like like i mean regardless of how uh how high up or how much leverage they have within the organization like they are still a human being who still have like pressures on them who are still operating like within a certain set of constraints. Like even if you're the CEO of a company, does that mean you can do anything you want? No. (laughs) Uh, And uh, 
who, you know, still might have like fluctuating energy levels, like they get tired, they get cranky. Uh, So, you know, that basically says like, hey, uh, if you want to have a conversation with your manager about like getting a raise, right? So like, you know, one of the ways to think about that is is to understand, well, so first of all, you have to understand that your manager can't write that check for the most part, right? Like they are, they're going to have to go and have conversations with other people to make that happen, which basically means that like, you're also going to need to, to, uh, to arm them for those, for those conversations, right? So like, because they're going to have to make a value case for you. And it also means that you want to have that conversation at a time when it will be easy for them to, to say yes. Uh, you know, so like if you catch them, uh, like, you know, basically like right before a fundraise is about to start, it, it might be reasonable for you to ask for the raise, but it's going to be hard for them to give it to you. And so, like, do you really need to be doing it at that moment versus, like, can you wait, like, three or four months for when the fundraise closes, right? And, and, and it, it, again, it doesn't mean that it's undeserved. It's just, like, you know, there's something to be said for asking for something at a time when it's going to be easy for the person who can give it to you to give it to you. So, like, I don't necessarily think about that as, like, as like having empathy for the other person's uh, for for what the other person is going through, which like it's great if you do, but whether you have empathy or not, it's still valuable to be thinking about what that other person is going through. Yeah, I think empathy like is a is a, a word that has uh, tough edges around the definition. Yeah, but like to me, it mostly encompasses like simulated decision making and like, do you really know what motivates that other person or not? Yeah, like can you think about how how it feels to them? Because um, I think the most rational people in that I know are still like, I mean, emotions are driving the, the emotions are driving the car. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's certainly true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the other interesting thing that I think is sort of useful to unpack a little bit here is that like, so this is probably not true in like, you know, traditional manufacturing businesses or insurance companies or banks. But like in in technology companies and in 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 many cases, like not always, but but in many cases, like your manager might actually be your peer Mm -hmm. and not your superior. (laughs) Uh, Like it's 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 more that that like you are tasked with delivering some some functional value. If you are an IC, they are tasked with delivering some business value as the manager, like your, your outcomes in a sense are like linked. Uh, because if, if they don't get from you, the functional value, they will not meet their business value goals. If you don't get from them, the context, like you will not meet your functional value goals. Right. And if you're not, if they're not delivering opportunities to, to enhance your career, then, then they don't get to keep that's you. Also not, that's also <laughs> yeah. not living up to their part of the contract. Uh, yeah. And so, but, but like essentially what that means is that, you know, you, you want the kind of interaction with them that, that you would want with any other peer, mm-hmm. right? Like you've got to be able to collaborate through, through these problems and like, if you're working with another data scientist on something, do you like, should you care about that person as a human? 
probably. <laughs> yeah, it'll it'll help more than it'll hurt. Um, that basically covers my thoughts on there. I think the other part that I wanted to say is that, like I. I understand that it's harder to empathize upward yeah. and I am like possibly an extreme example of that mm-hmm. where I have inherited from my father an, an anti-authority emotional uh, set. Yeah. Um, for, for what it's worth, I, I have the same thing. Like I, I, you know, when I, when I look at someone who manages me, I have very, very high expectations of what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to remember that they're they're just being a human and winging it like the same way that everybody else is. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think like we are probably like uh, both of us, I'm guessing, at the outer edges of these complexes. And I, I'm going to hazard a guess that a lot of people in data, data science also suffer this problem. Yeah. Because... Like, let's face it, a lot of what gets you into data is a tendency to, well, actually, people are trying to <laughs> tell you what to do. Well, actually, so I got into data for a different reason. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to edit out all yeah. that after. <laughs> uh, I think we should keep it, actually. <laughs> we'll see. And like, if you are going into data science management, it is natural to want empathy from the people whose decisions you are collaborating with. Like if you're trying for that peer relationship too, it is also not a thing that you should expect. Mm. And like, that's, that's a tough thing to live with. I think I've struggled with that at like various points in my life. And, but it, it's an important thing to remember. Like it, you're not, owed, you're definitely not owed empathy. Yeah. It there you can tell other people that it's useful for them to give you empathy, but like, when you're literally telling them that there, yeah. that's the moment then they'll probably won't be listening. Yeah, well, and and like you know, I think to that point, like it is important as well to acknowledge the power imbalance. Like the the reality is, like as a manager, you you will have hiring and firing authority. Like you you represent this person during whatever calibration process is being run. Like you get to judge their performance like they don't get to judge yours in most organizations, not always, uh, but but in most organizations, like there is definitely an imbalance there. That is absolutely correct. Even even though a senior IC is a peer. Yeah. Like there is there is like it's like it's a thing that we say because we want it to be true. But it's definitely still not how the humans and the structures and the like the internal politics behaves. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, I would say like like to me, that's what are that's the strongest argument for empathy towards managers is not owed, because at the end of the day, like they a, a manager still has uh, still is in a position of leverage over an IC. So, do you owe your manager? Empathy, like, I don't think so. Uh, But again, like, that doesn't preclude that, like, you will have better outcomes if you do understand what their world looks like. Yeah. So that's, I think for every manager, it's worth the effort. Mm -hmm. Um, But they don't, they shouldn't get unlimited rope, right? Like, that's just, that's, like, that's how human relationships work. And the managerial one is is no different. Um, Right. 
So we have a couple, like we have uh, 13 episodes under our belt. 13 episodes. Yeah. So things happen. We talk about topics and then the world changes. <laughs> so we wanted to take a, a, a whole episode to like revisit some of the topics and find out if the world change has changed and like whether we need to update our beliefs about them. So uh, one of them I want to bring us back to, the first one, will I'll bring us back to episode two where we talked about p-hacking. Mm -hmm. In particular, we talked about um, a, a paper that was released by my, my old colleague, uh, Leo Pekulis, mm -hmm. who I believe Ian just met. Um, oh, that's who that was. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Smart guy. Yeah. Um, where they figured, like, the, you know, the, 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 like, TLDR on the paper was that, like, the majority of people engaged in A-B testing were P-hacking to some degree. Mm -hmm. And both of us met that with the resounding, like, sounds right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, I believe that our take was, like, P-hacking isn't as bad as all of that as long as you're doing it in contextual ways. And it's still probably better than not yeah. A-B yeah. testing. Yeah. I mean, and, and also that, like, if you're doing this in a commercial context... Your goal is progress, not correctness. Yeah. Like, the world will sort of correct itself if it turns out that you're wrong. But, like, you just want to know, well, like, which door should I walk through? Right. And I even, I believe that my my final takeaway on that is, like, a lot of p-hacking stems from your implicit, your implicit desire to have a Bayesian model that overrides the frequentist software that you're using. Yeah. Which I think, again, is probably leads to a fine outcome, but it feels bad, right? Like it feels icky and it yeah. feels undisciplined. So um, another former colleague of mine, um, Ronnie Kohavi, like found that paper as he finds every <laughs> testing paper. <laughs> Responded to it, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But basically, he's saying, you know, he that um, paper based its uh, its conclusions on a flawed data set. It was mostly drawn from Optimizely, mm -hmm. um, which I think even on its own shows you that there's a limited validity from the, from the paper. That I don't think would like. I don't think the authors of the paper would dispute that. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone would claim that these are that that like this tells you what the best trained statistician in the world would do. Yeah, even I, I like we have the ex uh, head of product for Optimizely wandering around here uh, working on various plans, and he will tell you that like. It's not supposed to simulate a statistics department. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, you know, it's designed to sell to people to make A-B testing easy and to handle easy problems. And, it, and it's not supposed to be the most rigorous or correct way to go. Like it, you know, you, the people who are opting into Optimizely are people who are like, hiring a data scientist sounds complicated. <laughs> like, why don't we try this doohickey out and see what it does for us? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that's the, that's like that's how how you would describe the bearish case like the that's bullish me case being a, that's me being a jerk yeah <laughs> yeah like the uh the bullish case probably sounds something like like running some kind of experimentation around our website copy is probably a good idea but doesn't really warrant us spending two hundred thousand dollars on a data scientist mm -hmm. 
Um, and or you have a data scientist and you there are a few things where the test is like literally just like which of these two numbers is larger will ship it. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and like have that person work on something else. And by the way, I'm also speaking about optimizely 2014 through 2015, which is both when the paper was written and also when all of my impressions were formed of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like I, I my understanding is, is like much like that, you know, I've heard serious people say like it, it's not a good idea to be running your own, like writing your own A/B testing platform these yeah, days. I would, I would, I mean, that's probably true in most it's contexts. True. It like, wasn't true in 2012, yeah, let's say. Yeah, but like, just like it's probably not a good idea to run your own server farm these days, like, uh, like that tends to just become true over time, right? Like mm -hmm. in, in like 1999, if you wanted to launch a website, like, not only did you need to build your own servers, like, you also had to, like, build the custom connections from your, you know, from your database to, uh, to your, you know, to your web views. And then you had to write all custom code to generate the HTML. Like, you would never do that today. You would just pick a framework like Ruby on Rails <laughs> and, like, ship your website that way. So, so, like, this tends to become more and more true over time. Like, as something within the stack, like becomes a standard, like like and and what I mean by a standard is like if you are running a company, you will need X, and you can and the way that X is configured is basically the same across these thousand companies. Like then you go by X, and so A/B testing probably looks like that now. Yeah, now I have complicated thoughts about which things are likely to get better over time. Yeah, but like way way too way too long and academic for one. <laughs> One episode. So, like, what Ronnie found was that, like, uh, Optimizely had a bug in it, which basically um, helped UP hack uh -huh. during that time period. So, like, <laughs> the <laughs> like, it does kind of flip the <laughs> it does flip the the headline a bit on the paper yeah. to like, we are surprised that only twenty seven percent of people <laughs> <are> hacking. <laughs> um, but, like, I don't feel like it really impacts the conclusions. Yeah. Like, this is one where, like, I I still feel like the answer is, like, probably still a lot of people p-hack. Yeah. And also, it's probably still not that big of a deal, except in some cases when it really becomes one. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, like, you know, I I think to me, like, this is still pointing at, like, when you are running a, like, when you're trying to launch a commercial product, like, when should you be A-B testing versus not? Mm. Uh, and, like, that to me is kind of the right thing to be thinking about of, of like, when do I need to run experiments? Like, when do they add value uh, versus, like, when do I just have to, like, go with the product hypothesis and just try it and, and like, see if it goes? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, like, I think the thing that Optimizely did... Uh, in terms of like at least the way that I saw people use using the product during during that period, is it like made people think that you could just experiment your way to success and say like, hey, look, there are you know ten people visiting my website. If I optimizely this, I will get to ten thousand, and like that's not really true. <laughs> yeah, no, that that like. <laughs> Hopefully that is mostly dead as a thing. Like, yeah, I, oh, it, I, I mean, at this point, it's mo like yeah. well, s certainly at this point in Silicon Valley, that is dead as a thing. 
I'm, I, I don't live elsewhere, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, the way that I've sort of reasoned about this is essentially like, uh, if you know what the causal levers are, mm-hmm. like you don't really need an A-B test. Uh, and I mean, a, you know, a great example of this is, is, uh, uh, is there, there are folks in the medical space who, who like to claim that like, we shouldn't be running trials for everything because like, Hey, you don't need a trial to tell you that parachutes save lives jumping out oh, of the yeah, and again, like that's a silly, like, uh, yeah. like, and I think he, you know, I'm not sure. I, yeah, no, it, it, seriously. In his in his particular case, like he he was using that as a lever to show that the environment matters because, mm-hmm. like, they were basically showing like, uh, like it, it was this tongue in cheek study saying, hey, parachutes don't improve, uh, don't uh, like do nothing. Uh, to improve mortality jumping out of airplanes where the jumping out of the airplane was the airplane on the ground. Yeah, well, it was like stationary and like high. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, whereas like like parachutes have physics behind them. And so like you have good reason to believe that you configure it right. It will work mm-hmm. versus like you know, versus versus like a medical treatment where that's not necessarily true. Right. So, I mean, that the parachute like thing does cover a good point on like what optimizely and anything, even a good data scientist can't do, which yeah. is like tell you whether your test is valid. Yeah. Right. So validity is like, does does your experiment actually tell you what your software will do when yeah. you implement this code? Yes. There are methods for doing validity. There are statistical methods for doing, like, for analyzing validity. But, like, there's no validity in a box. Yeah. Right? Like, it needs a lot of conceptual things to get itself off the ground. And so, like, obviously, like, that, the example of that parachute is, like, one where it's, like, yeah, yeah, we did an experiment. But, like, does it extend to the real circumstances where you would use a parachute? No. Yeah. And... Like, I think that there's some serious issues using off-the-box A-B testing um, platforms when you don't, like, when you don't have a product person or a data scientist thinking through the validity. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, just to take an arbitrary example, like, a lot of people do do no harm tests. Like, Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, I want to make this change. I don't want to see that it doesn't screw up the metrics. Yeah. Well, the null hypothesis for most A-B tests out of the box is that you didn't screw up the metrics. So 95% of the time, you'll yeah. say, you know, you didn't screw up the metrics. And if it's a small screw up of the metrics, it won't detect it, like, most of the time also. Yeah. So it's, like, a completely invalid – like, it is not, a, like, a, a very valid way to think about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, like, that's actually, like, probably one of the most, like, nuanced part of a data scientist's job is to, like – think through validity to, uh, yeah oh i thought you were going to say to understand the ridiculous backwards logic of a of hypothesis testing uh, also also that <laughs> yes um but like you know i was i was more thinking about it from the uh uh from from the context of like well there's an argument to be made that like validity might not matter that much in a commercial context because like you're going to like this isn't like I run the test, I write a paper, I move on to the next thing. Like yeah, no, you're, you're going to sam- actually like launch this into yeah. the software product. Your statistic is your parameter. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, basically like I am going to like use this experiment 
to, to say like, hey, if we launch this, this metric should go up by X amount. And then I'm going to go and launch it and watch that metric. Yeah. And no, it, you, <laughs> more like the data science, I think that a lot, like if you talk to data scientists of various backgrounds, you'll find that like the ones that used to be social psychologists are the happiest because like they're like, you, oh, look, I can test my stuff they're now. Just like, <laughs> I just turn it on and I have validity. I don't have to spend a million papers arguing <laughs> that I have validity when I know that I probably don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've seen that go the other way, too. And it, uh, especially in early career people where, like, they have spent their entire academic career arguing about validity. <laughs> now what do I do with this? <laughs> well, and, like, therefore think that, that like, they need to worry about that here, too, mm. as opposed to saying, like, look, worry about whether the experiment shows, like, so number one, worry about whether there is enough value in this experiment to run it at all. Like, that's worry one. Worry two is assuming that you have that you have crossed the threshold for value. Worry whether your experiment is giving you a, a, a result that says you should ship this thing. And then and I uh, and then worry like then like assuming you cross threshold two, then say, OK, what do I expect this thing to do? Like, how am I going to know once I've like let this out into the real world, whether whether like my experiment was wrong? And that's just like, what metric do I have to watch? Is it 100%? No, <laughs> right? Like the metric might move for other reasons, but it gives you, you know, again, it's it's this idea of like, of like velocity and directionality. So like just moving in mostly the right direction most of the time is like enough when you're running a company. Yeah. I think in my first year of it as a data scientist, I like fended off a, a proposal to do that by saying, you want me to like to judge my valid inference by doing an invalid inference, <laughs> um, which I think is, you know, in retrospect, probably not correct. Mm -hmm. uh, although like I, I, you know, I do agree with you that like the, like you, that's hard, yeah. right? Like you, you release, you, you run your randomized test, you see the lift, then you release it. And then there was no lift there. And you're like, well, okay, what happened? And then like, it's like, well, every Tuesday of like this year, <laughs> this company loses users for yeah. some reason or whatever, right? Like there's an infinite number of alternative hypotheses there is that, you know, you could probably get it down to plausible ones. Yeah. Um, all right. So we also, let's also do some more follow-up. Like uh, one of my favorite episodes that we did was episode seven, which was about uh, primarily about open source software. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, to build some of what we covered, like it mostly centered around my frustration with economics departments. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, this is changing a bit, I still think. Um, like there's a, you'll find people defending Stata on the uh, internet. Yeah. But I'll, just to revisit, yeah. <laughs> Stata is a statistical software primarily used by biostatisticians and uh, economists. Mm -hmm. If econ departments were pushing R, they'd be doing their students more favors. Um, they'd be expanding their human capital. Yeah. And it frustrates me when people um, still use data from, for things. Yeah. So there, there are a couple of things that, like, I've, you know, that, like, I've started to pick up in, in some of the, like, public conversations and, 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 uh, 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 and like, articles that I've seen published, which is that, so, so the big thing that I think may 
that like I, I at least did not know about at the time that we did that we did that episode uh, is that the legacy world also appears to be shifting towards open source, uh, which is, you know, at, at least to my mind, again, like not surprising if you are a person doing this kind of work like that is that's just what you should be working in because it, it improves your employment prospects and uh, uh, and is, you know, kind of becoming like a very, a very standardized skill set. Um, what uh, what I've sort of been hearing from from like uh, uh, from various enterprise places now that 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 we kind of interact with is they they are also starting to move toward towards open source with the idea being that that you reduce vendor dependency and vendor risk uh, when you do that. So. And I mean, we've we've certainly seen this 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 theme kind of like starting to talk to larger enterprises who are like starting to move away from these like closed source things and like into open source. Uh, the arguments that I that I've heard for it, which like I mean, look, I, I use only open source software, so I, I'm very like I'm obviously like very sympathetic. Uh, again, come down to. Uh, reduction of vendor risk uh, uh, and their ability to access talent, like most people, like most data scientists, for instance, uh, would rather be using R and Python uh, versus like Stata or SaaS uh, or like any any of those products that 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 like you that you have to pay for. Right. And that was like the emphasis of the episode. Right? Yeah. Is that like there the implicit, like there's an implicit uh, wage cut that yeah. you're taking by working on a piece of custom or closed closed off software yeah. if you can't transport it outside of the company that you're working for. Yeah. So, so I know that like since that episode, I, I've also like, I mean, I, I love to dive into ecosystems and like try to understand like, well, how, how do they work? What are the what are the dynamics in here? Like, what kind of future is there for X? Um, and you know, I I would say like the thing that 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 I ended up coming to was also that like there's a bunch of complications in there too, right? In terms of the open source versus closed source, especially when you think about like how does open source software get written, and like uh, and and how does it capture value? Because if something is not capturing value in the world, like people tend not to want to work on it. Right. So if you, I mean, there's a whole formal model about this. Right? <laughs> so if you're like in in my, you know, econ classes of the 100 plus variety, you would say that like if something can, like if you can, like if the private returns to something are high, then the capitalist system will find a way to make it. Yeah. If the public return is higher than the private return, meaning there's like like the spillover effects of having made the software can't accrue to the person who made the software or sold it or mm -hmm. whatever, then the a capitalist system will actually underdeliver on those types of goods. This yeah. is a thing that like hardcore capitalists believe and socialists believe basically the same. Yeah. Um, now, I, 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 I would argue that there's a subtlety in there. Um, I mean, one of the things that like that that like Microsoft, especially in its in its heyday, was always proud of 
was the fact that their ecosystem created more value for other like way more value for other people than they captured. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like the argument, by the way, should not be that like you like every private good is going to have public spillover things like that literally is what Adam Smith is trying to say with the invisible hand, no matter uh, uh, unless you follow the like he was doing theology interpretation. Yeah. But that, you know, that private profit makes a public good is the thing that that, yeah. that people are trying to push with that metaphor. Yeah, yeah. So so the core idea is basically that like the private entity who is investing in building this thing needs to capture enough of the value to make that effort worthwhile. Enough to be profitable. Yeah. Right. And economically profitable. Yeah. Especially relative to the opportunity cost, right? Because it's not just like, oh, I I can make X profit. It's also like that profit needs to be worth it relative to all the other things I could be doing. Again, like, sorry for being an econ jerk about things, but like, if you're not counting opportunity costs, it's not real profit. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. I'm a physicist. Um, And so this is fun. Yeah. Um, But uh, but yeah, but but, you know, so so that was certainly a thing that that like Microsoft was very proud of, Mm -hmm. that they created this ecosystem that generated a ton of value. I think by their estimates, they were only capturing maybe 20 percent of it or something like that, Mm -hmm. which like, by the way, from from my perspective, like when I. When I look at at making an investment in a company, that is one of the things that I tend to look at to 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 essentially say like, okay, I don't actually care how much money I or others are putting into this thing. Like the people involved in that part and the financing part cannot own more than twenty percent. If they own more than twenty percent, then everyone else is is not going to be incentivized well enough to like do all of the work. <laughs> I think that I think that that's a pretty like that is like when people think about like uh, predatory lending, yeah, right, like that. Like if if the financial stakes are more like the financial stakeholders own too much. Yeah. And the people that do the work are most likely at some point just going to declare bankruptcy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, when I think about this, it's like, well, do I know that's the absolute right number? Like, eh, probably not. Eh, who knows? But it's like, it feels ballparkish, right? Sure. That like, if I were going to sell something or, or if someone came to me and said, here's a thing you really want to do, uh, I will give you the resources to do it for 20% of the gains. Like, then it's a no brainer. Right. If they're saying I will give you the resources to do it for 49 percent of the gains, like then it's, you know, then it's like, well, do I really want to do all that work for only half? Like, probably not. Yeah. And also, like the the people who would agree to that are probably more desperate than the yeah. people who would accept the 20 percent. Yeah. 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 And so so like whenever I look at something like I feel like 20 percent is like kind of the right ballpark in terms of the value that should be captured. And then that ends up speaking to like to like the open source ecosystem and how all of that works because like I feel like we might be entering a cycle where or uh, where like maybe that's not true for the folks working on open source software. Right. So I think, you know, I think we want to refer back to this Ben Thompson article yeah. that like walks through MongoDB, not one of my favorite all-time <laughs> products. But like again, like yeah. they they had some open source like uh, like they have an open source piece of software, 
And like, there's a genuine worry. Like, I think you you want to be using open source software you can, and like, it's not necessarily a given that it's profitable, easy uh, to produce. Can I can I throw one thing in here before before, sure. before we go on on this? Uh, if you walk into a company, I'm talking to our listening audience now. If you walk into a company and they show you their data system and it is entirely in MongoDB, oh God. Uh, turn around and walk the other way as quickly as you possibly can. I mean, I'll tell you one thing. I know that that company was probably founded in like 2012 or 2013. <laughs> yeah. And for whatever reason, lucked into success long enough to, to, <laughs> to last this long. Mostly you can just say MongoDB around <laughs> a, like an ops or backend engineer and they'll just shudder. They'll yeah. give a whole backend shudder because they lived through a whole fad of using it as though to replace relational yeah, databases. Like as the data store that backs everything. <laughs> like, you know, I get why like engineers get frustrated with Cobb normalization and relational databases and normalized models and the restrictiveness of SQL. Yeah. But like it is irritating because it is useful. Yeah. It is the <laughs> is the thing you should learn from all of that. But anyway, that's it's a it's it's a long tangent. Yeah. Um, right. So like maybe you could walk us through a little bit about like what is like what is the problem selling open source software in a world where and I think in particular for for them it's in a world where somebody that you're counting on to basically distribute some of the game like the like the 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 front end of what you're doing or distribute you to users could probably just rip you out and rewrite it themselves yeah so 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 the issue that this that that like kind of gets exposed here is basically that like when you write a piece of software like like what are you actually delivering right so you're delivering some some interface to to a user right if you are uh uh, uh if you're you know say salesforce like that interface is the saas application that the salesperson uses to input their data and manage all of their their contacts and their and their sales pipeline and all that stuff mm -hmm. um, if you're if you're publishing a python library yeah the interface is some version of like you like what they pipe hip install yeah and how do they call like how do they it's like call and use it yeah like how do you call the various functions to like do an x mm -hmm. right so so take the take uh, the Python library scikit-learn which is like the most popular machine learning library in Python uh, what is that so like there's a bunch of like really complicated like uh, 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 sort of subroutines in there that run optimizations and fit models and all that stuff you as the user, are you using any of that? No. You are using a, uh, a, a, set, uh, a set of functions that are, that, that are just like dot fit, dot predict, right? So that is the API with which you are interacting with this like super complicated library, um, which essentially means like, like that's great for the user. Right, because you can you can essentially the the library allows you to create this model object. It gives you a very clean API into that model object to say, I would like to fit you now with this data. I would like to predict you now with this data, uh, and that is essentially like the product that is delivered to the user. So the value to the user is actually in the interface and all the stuff that 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 the interface does. 
Um, so the thing I, I can at least say from experience is that like all the work goes in underneath the interface and that stuff is a lot of work. Uh, but that like most users don't see that and don't care about that. What they do care about is what does the interface look like? So why is this an issue in, in, in open source? Uh, so now let's say that I am Google and I have a whole bunch of like super compute things. Uh, super compute things. Yeah. So like, you know, basically like I have servers that can, that can run any kind of computation that I want. And I look out there in the world and I basically say, huh, all the data scientists out there are all using uh, scikit-learn. Um, but really, like when I then go and examine their code, there's no scikit-learn code in there. There's just a bunch of calls to model.fit and model.predict. What is to stop me from then saying, okay, well, I'll just re-implement that on my platform, right? And then all the code you already wrote is going to work perfectly, right? Because it's the same. Uh, and you as the user, like you don't actually care about all of this optimization stuff. What you care about is that you got your model and that you didn't have to rewrite all this code. And also, like, I'm Google, I'm a thousand times the size of the people who wrote and maintain this library. And so, like, really, it, plus, like, I've been doing this at scale for 15 years, like, I can do this better. Uh, and so then what does that mean? It basically means that for the people who found that initial insight, where the initial insight was it's the dot fit and dot predict that matter, like, they cannot capture that value. This makes it a non a non gated uh, good. Which yeah. uh, again, like I don't know why this is suddenly like the the econ episode, but like yeah. that makes it a like a, by necessity a market that it doesn't fit like the normal um, like the normal subject of economics, where like the normal subject of economics is a gated good and a rival good, where like you can claim this piece of pie as your own, and yeah. when you eat it, no one else can eat the pie. Yeah. So when you can't get a good like music, then it's really hard to sell. Yeah. When you can like a CD, and it's really easy to sell. <laughs> well, and 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 you get a good price for it. So, so the thing that, that Ben Thompson's article went into was really around like, well, so MongoDB, they built this big company around this document store, mm -hmm. right? But the thing they actually figured out was like, well, they had this insight that like uh, in web companies, like serving up documents directly might be important. Uh, and they built a whole database around this and, and, and essentially like specified what the API should look like. So like now any developer can like, they don't have to worry about building a document store database. They just call Mongo, you know, Mongo, give me this page, Mongo, give me this page. Uh, and, uh, and they actually built a fairly successful commercial company off of this. Mm -hmm. uh, Too successful at one point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and like created a lot of value in two users, which got reflected uh, uh, as value in, in the public markets. And then, you know, kind of like like that type of thing of like, well, figure out an insight for 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 users, build a software tool that can do it, open source that tool so that like anyone can use it and can also examine your source code. Uh, and 
uh, and like make money off of off of some kind of managed offering. Like people were thinking, well, this is actually like potentially this is this is a good business model right. for open source software. So what did they? So if the software is open source, they were making it off of like helping you figure out how to implement it, maintaining the API. Like so, so basically, uh, uh, I, I I don't know if they ran consulting services, mm-hmm. but the standard way that people thought about open source companies making money was like just because you have the mongo code like there's all the this ancillary cost that you're going to bear to run it right because mm-hmm. you got to put it on your servers you have to like you essentially have to make sure that it's always up mm-hmm. for your users on the web right so this is like the version of like why amazon's code is different for their phones or tablets or whatever yeah and because they do that, they actually bear that. Cost. Yeah, yeah, and so and so essentially, like the way that that they were that that like they were making money is saying, well, uh, you probably don't want DBAs who are going to run all of this. You don't want to have all the servers. You don't want to worry about this. We'll give you an offering where. Uh, where like we will manage the database for you, so you get the same API as if you were running the thing. <laughs> except that they're running it and they're making sure that it stays up. And the argument for why you should even you should definitely want to do this is they're going to say well you if you were doing this yourself you'd be doing it only for yourself. Mm-hmm. We are doing this for 10,000 companies at once so we're actually likely like not only are we cheaper, but we're very likely to be better at this than you as well. That honestly makes sense. Yeah, which totally makes sense. It's a great business. Until you get to a place where everyone is running on Amazon or Google or Microsoft, right? So then you run into a problem because that is essentially what what like AWS and GCP and Azure like do to compute. And once you and and you as Mongo have now revealed to them that, hey, document stores are important. And here's exactly what the API looks like. So it's the same issue as as this like SK Learn toy example of like of like if if they don't incorporate you into their into their offering, uh, they uh, it, it so it doesn't even matter how you license your software. They have enough software engineers to rewrite the whole thing into the same API. Yeah, I mean the prediction I would make from the outset of this is like if you write too restrictive a license. Then everybody rips your stuff out. If you yeah. write too permissive in a, a license, then, then they'll pays just you. like stick it nobody in, pays and, you. and like nobody pays you. Yeah, uh, and so you can sort of see that that like there's a uh, there's like you run this out to the edge, and like you kind of have an issue of like it's it is actually like not at all clear that you that that you as an open source developer like would be able or or, or sorry. Uh, I shouldn't say that. It's not at all clear that you can wrap a commercial entity around open source development. Mm-hmm. Uh, because again, like once you once you have exposed the insight, someone larger can essentially just like build all the way up to the API that you've now created. There's nothing to stop them from doing that. Um, and so uh, 
and and there's just like not a way that like you can protect this, right? Uh, which basically means now you can't capture the value of the thing that you're, or you can't capture enough of the value of the thing that you're creating. This sounds extremely similar to like the stories of that you hear about early early coding languages and the relationship with Windows, the operating system. Yeah. Um, where they would be like basically like Windows would look at the like Microsoft would look at the behaviors that were being developed in other languages and then try to build them into Visual Basic or um, C Sharp, right? That's what, yeah. that's the yeah, Microsoft yeah, yeah. one. Yeah, um, and then kind of capture that value for themselves. Yeah, well, and and it's and it's the same thing that Google did later. Uh, uh, where you know basically like Sun and therefore now Oracle like owned the owned the Java programming language, uh, and and Google on its Android platform like matched that API, and then there was a big Supreme Court case arguing about this. Um, uh, it, and in particular, like Oracle very clearly understood this issue because the argument that they were making was that the API itself constitutes IP. Uh, which is, I don't know. I'm not, is, I'm not a lawyer. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I have no idea about the law. Mm-hmm. I know from a practical perspective, like that is exactly the thing you would want to argue if you if you are trying to to make sure that that you can capture value out of that product because yeah. the API is the only thing that the that 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 the user or the customer ever sees. So, yeah, so I, I don't know where this, like, runs out to. I, I, I still think, like, as a, as a developer or a data scientist, like, your dominant strategy is absolutely use open source stuff. Um, right, but it's, like, it's not clear that the environment, like, I think that there are shifts of consolidation and D, yeah. D, like, consolidation, some of which need, like, help from the government if they're ever to happen. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's not always going to be there. Yeah. And it's not obvious. It's, yeah. it, like, I think Google does, like, like, you could evaluate Google on, like, do they contribute to open source versus do they try and gate things? Yeah. Uh, and it's mixed, right? There's there's a lot of stuff they do that does seem to like push an open source environment, yeah. and then there's BigQuery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So 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 there are kind of like interesting theoretical frameworks around this that you can use to try to understand what's going on, so that you can make a reasonable prediction of like, is this package going to be around <laughs> in in five years? This is me making my uh, yeah. social scientist skeptical face. So, uh, so, 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 one framework that I've found very interesting, and 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 we can link to this in the show notes as well, is the idea of uh, commoditizing your complement. So, if you are running a business, and there is a thing that will uh, uh, that is that is a friction point for people like using your service. Like that friction point is actually usually what is what is capturing the value within your ecosystem, and if you can figure out how to how to commoditize that thing, you tend to unlock a bunch of latent demand, and then all of a sudden you become the choke point, and you get to to like reap the profits. So uh, there's actually like a really interesting example of this going on right now, uh, which is. 
uh, if I am, uh, uh, so, so, uh, if I want to, or let's, let's look at the scenario as it was like five years ago. Uh, if I wanted to, uh, to, uh, start a company that was going to get value out of machine learning models, like what would I have to do? Right. So, so the answer was, well, uh, or, or, or if, if I just wanted my company to get value out of, out of, out of machine learning models. So the thing that I would have to do is I basically have to figure out like, how am I going to build those models? How am I going to get the hardware to train them? Uh, how, how am I going to like make sure that the training is right? And then how am I going to serve them up? And I would have to write a whole bunch of custom software to be able to do that. That's a lot of work. So if I'm a big enterprise, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go find someone who can write that custom software for me. Uh, or I'm going to find someone who already has custom software right. and, and just buy it. So now imagine that I'm Google. And I have, again, this giant compute platform that can run any calculations whatsoever. And I look out there in the world and I basically say, like, like what are people not doing on my platform today that I would really like them to be doing because I can make a lot of money if they do it? Right. So one answer to that is training and serving up machine learning models, which like I know how to do really well. Right. Now, what's blocking people from being able to do that on my platform? Well, what's blocking people is everyone is going to buy software to do this because they, they have to do all this custom stuff. So what do I do? I open source TensorFlow and like I basically say, okay. Now, don't go buy that software. Here's a thing that's now free. Yeah. And by the way, like tons of people are going to be developing on this. Uh, and, and like I've got this brand new layer called Kubernetes where like you can run any kind of computation you want and you don't have to worry about the servers. I'll manage all of that. So, so, so essentially what they've done is they basically said the, the complement to compute to like compute infrastructure is software. So, what I need to do is I need to commoditize the building of software so that people choose to do that piece. And then, and then like, then there will be more demand for my platform, which is like exactly the thing that they sounds, saw. Sounds like a fairly traditional loss leader strategy. It, it, when it, you it, describe it that way. It, 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 it like, it, it sort of is except that they're distributing a product that has no marginal cost to distribute. So and it's where a, they've it's already, a fantastic uh, yeah, loss so leader. It's a great loss leader. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, like if, if you were if, if that if 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 you were thinking about this ten years ago, you would basically package up TensorFlow into some proprietary package and sell it. Yeah, like, it's it's not always obvious that like these big companies need to price themselves greedily, yeah. as opposed to aggressively. And like the guy who wrote that sentence works at Google, so yeah. <laughs> like because they're like they're big monopoly. Like Google is a big monopoly of search yeah it's not a big monopoly of compute it's clearly got competitors that it's fighting against yeah so like it's it's going to price aggressively against those competitors and maybe that includes open source software or open sourcing things that are important and valuable and so sometimes like the lessons of capitalism yeah sometimes it works for you sometimes it works against you yeah so i mean what's you know what's what's interesting is that like well clearly the strategy that they've taken here is to say, okay, if we open source a bunch of this stuff, that's going to raise the, the demand for this kind of infrastructure. So then rather than like fighting tooth and nail 
with Amazon and Microsoft for the market that is that is uh, that's that's already there. They're basically saying, well, what do we need to do to grow that market? Mm-hmm. Uh, and like open sourcing pieces of software that people can just run on your system is like a great way to do that. By the way, that it makes like like oh, I mean, I guess I should keep this bottled up, but like. That makes great strategic sense. Mm-hmm. And I say this surprisingly because I worked at a company <laughs> where we were going to try to, like, displace the number one, like, maker of phones by selling a phone that was more expensive than theirs. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, what the second step of that was. Uh, yeah. So, like, these large companies, they don't necessarily make, like, the... The best decisions always. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, like, it, it it's... Well, strategy is hard. Yeah. Like, even when you're smart, strategy is hard. Yeah. Like, a lot of times you want to do something, and you're just like, well, let's just do it. And, you like, there's no actual strategy that will work. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so to me, one of, one of the key takeaways, at least, like, when thinking about, well, what tools do I want to pick up, is that, like, open source is not a, a panacea. Right. Like it's not well, just because it's open source, it means it's better. Like you do have to do something to like look at trend to basically say, like, is this this package like do I have a reasonable expectation that it's going to be around? And that's for two reasons. Right. One is just for you as a person, like you're going to be investing and like learning how to use that thing. If it disappears, like all that all that investment is now gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, like if you're a company, like you don't really want things inside your stack that are not being actively maintained. No. Uh, because then whenever anyone finds a problem, it just never gets fixed or you have to fix it yourself. Sure. You know, uh, it's turned into a fairly long episode, <laughs> but uh, I, I, had fun. I had fun too. Yeah. I think these are like, those are three, three topics that I care a lot about. And yeah. I, I personally feel like every time we talk about open source software, I want to go get my, um, my law and economics books and like mine them for more insights because that really is legitimately fascinating yeah. to me. Like it's an area of economics that I don't know enough about. And I feel like every day, every time I think about it, it gets more interesting so uh anyway thank thank you very much for joining me and ian here um if you want to uh give us feedback it's feed.back at smalldiffcast.com and you can also get us on twitter at of differences um donate at the patreon uh which is also of differences and i'm old jacket on twitter and uh, at ian blue one on twitter right thanks for joining us 